对。Hello and welcome to Writer Mother Monster, a community and conversation series devoted to dismantling the myth of having it all and offering writer moms solidarity, support, and advice. The show is streamed live on Facebook and YouTube and then released as an audio podcast on all major platforms. I'm your host, Laura Ehrlich, and before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our sponsors and patrons listed on the Writer Mother Monster website. Your support helps make this show possible. If you enjoy the episode, please become a patron or patroness to help keep the podcast going. And if you're a writer seeking additional support and resources, you can check out Thought Fox Writer's Den, a virtual and in-person writing center in Stonington, Connecticut, and online that builds community and supports writers of all levels with in-person and virtual workshops, coaching, events, and more. You can learn more at thoughtfox.org. Now I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Megan Stilstra. Megan is the author of three collections, Everyone Remains Calm, Once I Was Cool, and The Wrong Way to Save Your Life, the nonfiction book of the year from the Chicago Review of Books. Her work appears in the Best American Essays, New York Times, The Believer, Poets and Writers, Tin House, Long Reads, Guernica, Lit Hub, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. A longtime company member with Second Story, she has told stories for National Public Radio and the Museum of Contemporary Art, as well as Steppenwolf Theater, and regularly with the Paper Machete Live News Magazine at the Green Mill. She teaches creative nonfiction at Northwestern University and is an editor at Northwestern University Press. Megan has one child who just turned 16 and describes writer motherhood in three words as, oh my God. Now join me in welcoming Megan Stilstra. Mm -hmm. Hi. Hi. Laura, that intro was so sexy. You are. Thank you. Well, we are sexy, writer mother monster. Oh, that was a nut. That was like set spike. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I really sh I shouldn't use sports metaphors. I don't really understand them, but, uh, um, <laughs> I didn't understand spike either, but I'll assume it was volleyball and it was a good thing. And, and not Buffy, because that's where I would go right yeah. away. If I, I mean, if we just want to talk about Buffy for an hour, I, I would be happy doing that as well, too. As would did your face do that when my screen just froze? Did your did my thought, my screen froze? Okay, all right, we're we're gonna keep going. Technology's gonna it's gonna hold us together. We'll be fine. It's totally fine. Yes, I made a, an excited face when you mentioned Buffy, so maybe oh, that's what you okay. meant. We could talk about Buffy actually. Okay, I, all right, that was a great show. Um, but let's start with Oh My God, and then we'll circle back. So, yeah, Oh My God, as the three words for writer motherhood, tell us more. Yeah, I well, I I think. I, I just I just stood looking like at, at that prompt when we, when you first did, when you first sent it to me and I just stood there looking at it going oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god and then I just thought oh I am saying three words repetitively I can just I can just write that down I I think the the writer part of my brain always has many 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 words but then the editor part of my brain comes in and is like we're going to find preferably one mm -hmm. uh, I. I just started a, a full-time editorial position a, a year ago, and so um, now that I'm getting like more accustomed to the 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 
fast moving train that is submissions in my inbox. I'm learning more and more about the importance of finding very, very quick, brief sentences that that say the thing that, that we want to say. I think those folks that, that pick up my books would be used to me having very, very long sentences that that say what I want to say. And audio engineers that I've been lucky enough to work with will say to me later, wow, you don't you don't speak in periods at all. Like There are no <laughs> breaks in what in what you are saying. And now I'm going to break and and no. <laughs> yeah, but it's like no, but that's so eloquent. I think I always um, and this is part of motherhood. I think when mm-hmm. you have a small child, I think you get used to speaking in very short sentences because you don't know yeah. how long you'll have to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and now when I have the luxury of a conversation like this, I find myself sort of stopping because I don't know how to continue my sentence. I'm <laughs> so so it's very awkward. I've become very stilted and awkward in my speech so you'll have yeah. to bear with me about yeah that. no I, I got you that makes me think have you read any of Jenny Offel's work um she's like yeah like department of speculation and and just like I let you to anybody watching this if you like please go get that that book it just rearranged my my brain because she's talking about early motherhood but it's in these quick fragmentary sections and she's just, she's just like that this is the only way that we are able to think mm-hmm. and in that way the the form matches the actual experience I, it, if you dig that book another one is um a hundred essays I don't have time to write by the playwright Sarah Rule, who, I who, love that who gets into that same kind of structural stuff. Me too. Yes, yes. And oh, and we had Rachel Zucker uh, on the show a few, maybe a year or two ago, and sound yeah. scene, the same thing. It's just fragments, and it's all sort of wrapped mm-hmm. up in in needing the sound machine to be able to sleep. But then what happens if your child doesn't sleep, and you go crazy a little bit? And can I tell you what, when my kid was born, we lived right across the street from the Aragon in Chicago. It's just a, it's a legendary rock club on, on, the, on the north side. Like so, out my window is the Pixies and Megadeth and Rob Zombie and it, like happening all of the time. And I, in order to sleep, I started wearing earplugs. Now I can't sleep without them. But weirdly, like if that baby, again, this is 16 years old, so like I, like I'm I'm pulling off of like body memory right now instead of actual. Life brain memory but um but that kid would sneeze and i would be yes but i couldn't hear anything else with the the earplugs because you i mean you have to shut down the just the the constant it was awesome i loved it um but it 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 amazed me how and this is you know i I don't know it i don't think it's as easy as the the body bond because i I think that this happens with like non-birthing parents as well too you just have that bond where your child flips over like sometimes I'll be sitting in my day job and I'll, like you know like I'll, I'll feel a pinch in, or, or something and I'm like what what just happened to him in high school like what what is what is going on but unlike me 15 years ago I, I no longer feel the need to follow up on that right because I I know he's he's great like I mean this is a independent smart brilliant kid and and he's he's got this so. Well, and now he can tell you if something's wrong. And he, he does. He has language. Yes. yes, language is very helpful. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Have you seen, I feel like this was a viral video a while ago of two parents in bed, and they have the little baby between them, and suddenly the mother lurches up and grabs a pail and holds it, and the baby throws up. So even before anything, wow. she just sort of instinctually knew that it was the moment to hold the bucket yeah 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 it's like it's a sixth sense thing like I think my kid was like three or something and we were making um brownie I don't even know like something it's some baked 
good, which is in like sports is another language I don't really speak. But, you, you know, like the greatest thing ever in the world is to lick the spatula. Yes. And so that kid, he licked the spatula and then he licked the spoon and then he licked all the things. And I turned around for one second and then I felt I felt like I felt it. Like I, re- I remember feeling in my body and I turned around and he physically gotten up on the counter and was reaching like way out of his reach. There was a, a knife because I'd been uh, making a salad over here and he had the knife in his hand. And like I saw his tongue come up and he was pulling it. And it was just like, like, you know, those moments where we, like we can fly like suddenly yeah. I, I like I don't know what I did, but I was there like I like I, I was like, like I was physically there and he was very freaked out because I mean, I, obviously I was freaked out and then I calmed down and I was like, honey, what? What if we don't lick knives? <laughs> like, what, what if we just don't No, what if we just don't do that? And you and, and you know, just like the rational child question, but there's good stuff on the knife. Yeah. And it was like, okay, well, let me get this grape and I'm going to cut this grape and we're going to imagine if this was your tongue. And like, why, while I was saying this out loud, I was like, I am a horror story right now. But I remember my own mom, like when I, when I was little, I, 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 my neighbor, the neighbors across the street had a tree house and this tree house was epic. It was a met, like there were bridges from treehouse and that's all I ever wanted to do. But we lived on a pretty busy street. And so I would like run across the street to get into the treehouse. And she was trying to teach me not to run across the street. So she made a bunch of tuna sandwiches and two, we, we sat on the curb and we each ate a sandwich. And then she had three or four other tuna sandwiches in a Ziploc baggie and she just put it in the middle of the street. And we just sat there and we watched cars go by. I mean, in my memory, we were there for hours and hours. I'm sure it was minutes. And then she like picked up the bag and looked at me and said, I would like to talk about this with you. Um, and I think if somebody like if I had to name my parenting style, if the fuckery that we are engaged in every single day of, of parenting can be called style, uh, <laughs> that's probably my style is, oh, whoa, let's talk, like, tell me more. Talk, let's talk about this sandwich in a bag. Like, tell, tell me more about this. That's a fantastic story. I love that. It's really, ugh, tuna sandwich in a bag. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does this, this is a good segue to. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm dying to see how you're segueing now with that. Yes, no, because I read as we were talking before the show about some of your early or your work when you were a, um, a new parent and how that found its way into your work. And there's an essay of yours that I always thought of as a touch point essay for me as a, as a writer mother. Oh. And yes, it, no. And I think about it all the time and I'm horrible with titles. So you have to forgive me, but, but just, sure. there's a scene in this essay of you sitting in your bathroom trying to write an essay. Do you remember what I'm talking about while your son is outside the door and he's begging yeah. to come in? So do you remember that moment and can you kind of contextualize yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I mean, oh, I, the, I, I need to preface this because I know so many of your listeners are parents of small, small kids. And these moments, and this is maybe the, the beauty of writing is we get to freeze time, right? That moment doesn't live in my body anymore. Whereas when I sit down, like now that you're bringing it up and I actively try to remember it, I, like what I remember is, oh, my God, my whole life revolved around that. And I never thought I would get through it. Like just what it meant to try 
to grab 15, 20 minutes a day that were just for yourself. Yeah. Right. And, and that, and I was a, I was a parent who worked in the home and outside of the home mm-hmm. in all sorts of different ways of, of, of what that means. And, um, and so, so when I say trying to find a moment for myself, I mean a moment where I was not actively trying to make sure that the baby didn't run into moving traffic, not that babies run, but I mean, the, like <laughs> metaphorically, um, or doing my job that helped us pay rent. Um, because at that particular time in my life, and maybe a little bit still, like I, I had, I defined the word work, um, around capitalism, right? It, it was about the, the thing that I did that, that made us money so we could pay rent and so we could eat and health insurance, like the, the practical things that, that you need as best of your ability to, to bring to the table as, as, as parents. And, and I, um, if I can go off in this direction for a second before I come back, I, I really think that, that those things need to be free or subsidized or supported in, in greater ways. Um, what is universal, what does universal healthcare really look like in this country? How is that something that, that we can examine? Um, I didn't, I didn't have maternity leave. I, I didn't have any of that at all. Um, and, and there are so many parents who are walking that walk right now. And how on earth, how on earth do we do this? I, I mean, still now, like I, I'm, I'm less of it in that time. Like my, my son is very independent. I'm a, I'm a single mom now. It's, it's him and I. Um, and I don't know how, how I would do this if he weren't as independent as he was. So to the, specifically the, the single moms listening to, to this and especially single moms of little tiny kids that I, I didn't have to walk that, that walk. Um, but oh my God, I see you. I love you. You're amazing. I, I, I will go to my grave trying to make this world better for you. Now that I went off on that tangent, Laura, I entirely okay. forgot about what I was. Oh, I'm locking myself in the bathroom, right? The like for me, like shutting myself in the bathroom because our our place was uh lived in an 800 square foot apartment across the street from the Aragon, uh super super tiny. The only place, the only place that 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 had a door that that shut. <laughs> I mean, it was an open space. Um, was the the bathroom, and I thought that I needed to shut myself in there in order to engage with work that wasn't about capitalism right because at at that time my writing wasn't making money i'm i'm fortunate now um that i'm I'm in a a different position i mean i can't live entirely off of my writing but i i I kind of have an even split between the writing and the editing and the and the teaching uh which just even being being able to say that out loud i'm I'm 48 years old this is how long it took me to get to this particular space and i like it i i'm i'm happy in this kind of little little kind of puzzle Jenga board of, of the, the way things go. But at that time, um, I thought of the bathroom as a kind of a room of one's own. And I, I made an, I made an essay around that time. And th- this might be, I, I don't remember exactly where that scene is, Laura, but I, I think it might be inside of an essay called um, a room of one's own in the middle of everything by, yes. uh, Vir- uh, by Virginia Woolf. No, Virginia Woolf was, we all know who Virginia Woolf is. But anyway, I, I, w- I was trying to figure out, like, wh- what did it look like to try to, to make work when you don't have a room? Yeah. Because really, I, I mean, I, I did not, I did not have that. So I remember, like, sit, like sitting on the bathroom with my laptop and just trying to, like, I had, I had to stopwatch that for 20 minutes. And I was just trying to get something out of me. My little kid was, like, banging on the door, like, Mom, I want, and just kind of this, my God, like, the guilt of that, like, the, it is huge. Mm-hmm. It is huge. And and from where I'm sitting now, like just the um, the grand safety of retrospect, 
you know, I, I can say to moms of, of younger kids, dude, the, what's best for your child is your mental health. What's best for your child is that your brain and body are, are, to, are together, whatever that means for you. And so, Jesus, God, take your 20 minute. Like, how, but I, but I, I couldn't have fathomed that in that in that particular moment. So if you're in it right now, please know that hindsight is coming. <laughs> it, it is on its way. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And I love the advocacy that here, the the tone of advocacy and the calling for systemic change and Mm -hmm. also just change of the way we perceive ourselves as as creative mothers, right? Mm -hmm. And the guilt and shame. And so many women on the show have touched on on guilt and shame. And I feel it too Mm -hmm. still, even though my daughter's seven and a little more Mm -hmm. self or independent at this point. But yeah, we're so conditioned to feel guilty for taking time for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as if we're feeling something for our children. Yeah, and I, and and to all of you who are feeling that right now, I I I just want to say, for what it's worth, just wait, just wait a little bit. On Tuesday night, I got home. Uh, I got home from work around eight. I had a work event after work, and my son uh, had made dinner, and I uh, and and. And he and I sat down and we ate dinner and, and we were talking and he's a great cook. And I was like, listen, I sometimes I feel bad about that. You know, like the the kind of mom that I had planned on being would be the one who made you dinner and was here when you got home from school and was. Ch-. And he was like, dude, I'm so proud of you. You work so hard. And I it is it is it is amazing. It is amazing. And especially I, I think. I mean, with all of the, with all of the the activism that we try and do in our own ways, I, I think that that there is. I mean, for me at this particular moment, that there is nothing more radical than raising a white man in in this country right now, and and the fact that he uh, is thoughtful in in this way, and part of that is because he sees. He sees me trying to do this, and I'm and I'm not saying that I I hit it every time. Do y'all listen to Dessa? Can you please download her track Five Out of Six? I listen to that song on repeat, right? But but just the the line is, you know, I don't win them all, but I, I take five out of six. <laughs> I, I I think of that I think of that a lot. I mean, but 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 for all the moments that that I can say that, there's also the moments where like he has to throw in a frozen pizza, and then the frozen pizza burns the bottom of the oven and then the smoke detector goes off and then you're standing on a stool and you're trying to change a smoke detector. You're trying to slam it with a broom. And then the other day I hit the vase with the broom and then the, the vase broke everywhere. And so now there's glass on the floor and there's smoke detector going off and then there's smoke everywhere. And then like your kid walks into the kitchen and sees you like that. And you're just <laughs> like, Oh baby, I'm trying. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying. I love the balance between those two examples. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah because yeah. it is. It's, it's not always going to be perfect. It's not always going to be a shit show, even though it feels like it in those yeah. moments. Yeah. yeah. But what if the shit show can be part of the perfection? Yeah. Ooh, I don't know. Like, I'm still working on it. Like, it's a working theory that I am striving yeah. for a little bit. Um, Ooh. How would that work? Let's talk about that. Uh, well, first of all, like, what even is a shit show? Like, when I was in that moment, like on the stool, broken glass, beeping the the thing. And then the kid, my son walks in and sees me. I mean, in the moment I was like, shit show. Yeah. But I just told that to you. And 
it turned into this greater metaphor of the greater meaning of the world. And that's what our art does, right? That That's that's how we make meaning out of these moments that are, are so wild. And in the moment, it, it was something that felt painful to me. But I hope maybe there is somebody listening to this who is maybe able to feel a little less hurt in or alone inside of motherhood in hearing it. And then it becomes something that's amazing. My, my son and I had a, a, a you know, we all had a, a, a very, we were all trying to move mountains the, the first couple of years in the, in the pandemic. And, and my mountains were, uh, I became a single mom at that time. I was going through divorce. My son and I lived in uh, five States in two years. Uh, we were moving around a, a great deal. And, uh, and the, the, there was the virus, you know, like, a, um, it was a lot. It yeah. was a lot. And when we first moved into this apartment, I, I live now in, in Evanston, Illinois. Like I'm 10 minutes away from his high school, so we can walk there. I'm 10 minutes away from my job at Northwestern University Press, so we can walk there. And that was sort of my, my, like my priorities as a single mom were, okay, figure out how to get financially secure and then just get a place where the two, if you can walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially after those two years, I, we did so much driving. I was like, I don't ever need to be yeah. in a car again. Um, but I, I now have the apartment where the teenagers hang out, which is amazing. And I was in the kitchen doing some work, and there was a group of kids in the in the living room, and they were talking about something that had happened the year before. And, and one of them said to my son, hey, w- w- wait a minute, you weren't there. Where, where were you again last year? And my kid was like, oh, my mom and I were driving all around. It was this adventure. And I just lost my shit alone in the kitchen just because, like, I, my my perspective of that time had been survival, survival, survival. Like we're going to get through the day. We're going to get through the day. We're going to get through the day. And then just to listen to his perspective on it, mm-hmm. that like that is a story. That is that is making meaning out of something later. And I and it. I remember thinking, okay, I, I would like to take his eyeballs on this one. I, I would like to see it in that way. Like, what if I can look at that time in that way? Uh, and then to think about that as a writer, that's what that's what we're doing. We are writing about something after the fact. Like even if we write about it in present tense, like I think Anais Nin called it like white heat writing, like mm-hmm. in the moment, it's still after. So there is still editing happening. There is meaning being made out of all of these things all of the time. Oh, I love that. Yes. And I think this leads into something else we were talking about before the show about a piece that you published um, yeah. out of that, that time. And so tell me a little bit uh, or tell our listeners a little bit about that period of time and and where you were with writing during the pandemic in the midst of a divorce yeah. and survival and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I well, f- first things first, I, I didn't I st- I stopped publishing. I didn't stop writing. Um, and for me, there is a difference between the practice of writing and the choice of if and when and how to share it. Um, so I didn't stop writing because, I mean, I, but but the idea of sharing that work with anybody else was just unfathomable. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- that was just me be, because that I mean, it, first of all, it's terrible. Second of all, a lot of it is cruel. A lot of it is um, furious. A lot of it is sad. It is desperate. Those aren't things that I want to put into the world in that kind of form. And I, I, I don't know if you all have read um, Maggie Smith's new memoir, You Can Make This Place Beautiful. But I did the developmental edit on that book, and she and I worked together for a, a year on it. She's brilliant. And just on the first page, she talks about how she had multiple versions of the book. She had the, the, she had the version she wrote when she was angry. 
She had the version she wrote when she was sad. She had the version she wrote when she was trying to understand it. And I think that that's a great truth, right? Like she had to go through all these versions because she had to make the choice of how she wanted to share that story with us, what she wanted to say to us. And I think the same was true for me. Like with all of this going on, I was trying to figure out where we lived. I was trying to figure out what my job was. Um, I was trying for us to not get sick. Uh, and where we went first was my mom's house in rural Michigan. Uh, I told my son that, that she needed some help, but, uh, it was, I needed some help. Sure. Uh, we all need help sometimes. Yeah. And if there's anything I've learned about motherhood is, oh my God, we need each other. Like there is no, it is just not possible to, to do this on our own. Um, and I have the best village. I have the best people in my corner in, in all sorts of, of different ways. Um, but I, when I first started thinking about wanting to share something, wanting to share some of the writing, the idea of reaching out to any of the editors that, that I'm lucky enough to work with at, at kind of larger outlets was not something that I, I wanted to do. I, I didn't want to start telling this story everywhere. Mm-hmm. I wanted I, I I knew I knew that if I didn't start sharing that I that that, that for who I was I, I needed to start putting some of this out into the world. But I think we're so lucky in in that there are different size homes for our work there and 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 we get to figure out the people that we want to invite into our margins. The the writer Kese Lehman has this incredible piece on its blog on his blog. Y'all can Google it. It's called We're Not Good Enough to Not Practice. And in that piece, he talks about what it means to invite other people into, into your practice. And that's what we're doing when we try to publish, right? Like first you're inviting an editor into your margins. Yeah. Uh, and now I am inside of people's margins and, and I try to, I mean, just what an act of trust that is. I mean, you put your heart on a piece of paper, you hand your paper to somebody else. Like, um, so I, I wanted to be really thoughtful about who I was letting into my margins because I wasn't really talking about this a lot. At that point, like I was living with my son in my mother's basement. Um, it's not like I could call my girlfriends and say, oh, my God, please take me out for margaritas and then go dancing. It's not like I could online date. I mean, during I mean, this is the beginning of lockdown. Um, so I made this really small, weird piece. It's very short. I sent it to Lee Hopkins at a wonderful experimental literary journal called Cora, uh, which is published by Lydia Yaknovich's Corporeal Writing Center in, in Portland. Um, I had done some work with Lee before. She is a, a brilliant human being. I trusted her. I felt okay being vulnerable with her. But with that particular publication and and the particular piece that I was writing, I knew that it was, I, I'm not sure how to word this. I knew it was okay to be vague. Right. Like like to not say out, because at that point I wasn't ready to say out like my husband left me like it it took me a couple of years to be able to say that sentence without like rolling around on the ground. Um, But but at that particular time to start like easing myself into it, I needed I needed that I needed that space. I needed I needed to be able to. Maybe vague isn't the word. I, I, I think there are negative connotations to that word. Can I say subtle instead? Yeah, um, please. Yeah. 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 So um, so when you asked me, like, my, if there is something that I might want to read today, I, I think, first of all, that piece is short and tight and fast. But it yeah. also I, I mean, it was a big moment for me as a writer, because at that point, for years, I, I'd been working kind of on a larger 
scale and digging really deep and explicitly into what I wanted to, to talk about. Um, and I, I think the reason why I was being so careful was in part protecting my heart, but I, I didn't know what I wanted to say and what I wanted to not say because I have a child. And and I, I have always been very thoughtful about what I write about him or don't write about him, but this was the first time that I'd ever thought, okay, that there there are things that I am not going to say. Um, that let me rephrase that I am going to make the choice not to say because of because of my care for for this human being. So I was trying to start to figure out how to do that with this particular piece. Okay, so when we come back in a second, we're going to give you the full screen for the piece. Um, I would love to continue the conversation about saying or not saying things. So omission. Yeah. And, and, and how omission plays into truth. So let's talk about that when we come back. But right now, Megan, I'm going to give you the stage and I'm going to go away for a sec and then you'll take it away. Are you ready? I am. Okay. All right. This is called, this is called 545 and it lives at Cora. That's spelled K-H-O-R. A, if you want to um, give it a Google and support the incredible writers and editors that are there, I love them so much. They were very good to me. Okay. The lockdown started a year ago, but a hundred years have passed since then, or maybe just snap your fingers. I'm 45 years old in my mother's basement in Michigan and 33 giving birth in Chicago and 31 getting married on a beach and 28 falling in love and 22 falling in love and 20 and 19 and 18 in love. And at 17, I left this same basement. The world was at my feet. A red carpet spread out before me. And then I believed in only two things, writing and love. But snap your fingers and I only believe in one anymore. My son comes down the stairs and says, Mom, it's time. He is 12 and taller than me, and he is 12 in school on a computer, and he is 12 with allergies that terrify viruses or sniffles, and he is 12 when we arrive at his grandmother's with everything we own in the back of the car, just for a little while, I tell him, just long enough for me to figure this out, even though I figured it out at 44 and 28 and 17, and what on earth is time? It's 5.45 p.m. We put on shoes and masks out the door and across the backyard towards the fence between us and the tracks. He's been upstairs in school and I've been downstairs at work, our brains fuzzy from so much Zoom. Every day is a thousand things to talk about, a pandemic, an election, a racial uprising centuries in the making. What is happening to our family and where is dad and when do we go back to Chicago and our immediate story problem? If the train arrives in Ann Arbor at 6.06 p.m. and Grandma's house is eight miles from the station, at what what time will the train pass us by? I'm 45 years old, jumping the fence with my son, and 14 years old, jumping the fence alone to sit on the tracks and listen to the Pump Up the Volume soundtrack on my Walkman on repeat, and 16, jumping the fence to make out with my boyfriend in a field of fireflies, and 16, crying after the frat boys and their beer found me swimming naked in the quarry, and 16, screaming my beautiful fucking teenage girl rage safe under the sound of the train blurring by, and 33, sobbing through the voices in my head, 
telling me to launch my baby out the window, and then I'd drive four hours to Michigan in the moonlight, hand him safely to his grandmother, and walk out the door, across the backyard, over the fence. My body remembers this walk, this sky, this release, and when the train finally came, I screamed and screamed, because what else do you do with everything inside you? Mom, can you feel it? I can. I feel everything. Vibrations at first, then almost earthquake. Up from the ground and into my shoes, it's coming. Just around the corner past those trees, can you hear it? Louder. Louder. Rocks are spilling. Branches break. The earth is screaming, and what I don't say could explode this whole sky. We're close enough to reach out and... Lose an arm. One car passes. Two, three, four. We lean into the force of it, pushing towards the wake of the wind. Ten cars. Fifteen. Twenty. And we take off our masks and scream under the sound. My son is twelve and taller than me, and he is twelve and laughing at how ridiculous we are, and he is twelve and screaming at everything he doesn't understand. Someday he'll ask me about this time in our lives, and maybe by then I'll have found some words. But for now, I'm 45 in the wake of a moving train. I'm 45 making room in my body for other things. I'm 45 on a mountain in Moab and the desert at Red Rock and a bar in Las Vegas with a very tall cowboy. And this sure ain't love, but it sure is fun. And later, I'm 45 with my friends and our children in the ocean in California thinking, oh, love was here all along. It's okay to still believe. Thank you, Megan. That was beautiful. Thank you. And such a powerful reading, too. And I want to actually come back to reading aloud. Sure. That's part of your, your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, first, let's go back to uh, omission and what we don't include. So I'm not sure how to phrase this question, but it's something around um, getting at the truth or the the authentic experience um mm-hmm expressing what you want to say to the world, but if there are parts of that that for some reason or another you don't want to share because your your child will someday read it or maybe you have a mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. parents and it might be hurtful to them. Mm-hmm. So how do you reconcile that and how do you decide what to omit and what to keep? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I, I kind of once I started to get my heart back together a a little bit. Um, This was a big question, right? And the answer for me, just like it is with any question of writing, it's on our bookshelf. Like we, I mean, this has been asked of so many writers before you and I, um, the, I mean, what what we need to figure out the answer to our problems with writing is a library card. Like that, Mm -hmm. that is the, that is the thing. And someone that I started with was Deborah Levy, who, who put together a, um, like a trilogy of memoirs kind of in the, in the wake of, of her life imploding a little bit. And, uh, and, and there's one section that, that really kind of, you know, illuminated everything a little bit for me. And it was just this quick section in in the memoir. And she said, um, if you, like at the bottom of the ocean and you, like if you find a, a a recording, uh, like in a, in a box and you listen to it, um, and it's of my children's father and myself, uh, what you're going to hear is the great pain of people not saying what needed to be said. Okay. She said what she needed to say there in that moment. 
she didn't give us 20 pages of dialogue of scenes of what they didn't say together. Like her choice in craft um, was for me, one of body or like the, the, the choices are body to brain, right? Like, like when we're writing from the body, we're writing what people actually experienced. You're in the scene. What did it feel like in the moment? Where are you? What's the place? Who else is there with you? What was said? What do you experience? Like, like you're crafting that scene. Um, in what I just said, there is no scene work. That's the that's the the reflection. That that's the exposition after the fact. She made a choice. She still said what she needed to say artistically, but the specifics of what happened she held on to, right? Mm-hmm. And I think like this is a thing that again I learned a, I learned so much in these conversations with Maggie. And I also want to bring the writer Elizabeth Crane into this conversation with just a wonderful memoir she had out called uh, The Story Will Change. I also need to bring Gina Frangello into the conversation with her book, Blow Your House Down. Those three books were really kind of seminal texts for me during this period of time. And and luckily for me, I know all three of these incredible writers. So I got to like text them and be like, what the fuck? How do I do this? How did <laughs> how did this happen? Yeah. And it's constantly a question. And sometimes the question has to do with um, ethical concerns, like like that. This is what I want to. This is how I want to protect my children. Sometimes it has to do with legal concerns. Like Gina talks extensively in Blow Your House Down about like how, how they, she, like she was in a legal battle at that time. Maggie talks about this, too. Um, that was not my situation. Um, uh, but I mean, for, for, for those of you up against some of these questions, they, they, this is something that I that I've experienced a, a lot as a teacher. I. I I do a lot of um, work with with writers writing in and through trauma and and they're they're up against questions of legality and custody and um, in some cases violence if they if they tell the the specifics of what they're telling about. Like so I I get very um, aggressive, let's say, like when I hear teachers say, well, Tell everyone, like, open up your vein or like, what is the, the, the wonderful, I mean, and I do think this is wonderful, but the, the wonderful Anne Lamott line, like, if, if people, if people wanted you to write warmly, then they would have behaved better. Yes, yes. Let's be better human beings to one another. And also, there's some real questions of safety and care and, and ethics that, that, that people are up against. And so I just want to acknowledge that because some of y'all listening may, may be up against some of these things. And how we figure it out is craft. It's cra- It's on your bookshelf, right? So just even like the, there was a moment when Maggie and I were talking about the book, and this is something that, that she's talked about a lot on, on her book tour, uh, where I asked her, do you think you need to include the scene where your parents, or not, um, what, do you think you need to include the scene where you told your children what was happening? And she and I were on Zoom at this time, and she, and I think rightly so, was just like, no, I don't want to include that. That's their moment. That was about them. That was their pain. And also, why does a reader want to see a bunch of children cry? Really? Like, what? what is it about us as humans that wants us to watch that? And I was um, recording that conversation. Like, because cause we, I, I mean, I would record Zoom conversations and send them back to the writer, because back to your previous question about speaking out loud. I mean, for me, we, we find the words when we're talking through things, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. We'll send it back to Maggie. And I was just like, just transcribe that verbatim, transcribe that verbatim in the book. And if you pick up that section, that is what is in there. Mm-hmm. Some of you may want to see the scene where I told my children, no, you do not get to see that scene, right? She is, she is making a choice of what she wants to say to us. And I, and I think that the, the, like the, 
the dismount here of this question is um, you don't owe anybody all the details of your life. You do not owe anybody all the details of your life. What do you want to say to us? What do you want to say to us and how do you want to say it? And yes, there are going to be times that your reader is like, oh, wait, I need to understand what like what is going on here. That doesn't mean you need to give us 10 pages of dialogue. Yeah. So. Thank you. No, that's sure. helpful. And very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm struggling with these issues. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So let's see. We, we just mentioned the thing we were going to go back to, and then I forgot what it was. Talking, like talking yeah. it out loud, reading it out loud. Yeah. So second story. Um, yes. When I lived in Chicago, I used to go to the events, and I saw you read oh. and or speak because you don't read, right? Right, right. Uh, so can you talk about maybe second story and then move on to a more broad conversation about speaking our words? Sure. Well, they're really tangled together in, in my head. And, and I think, like, I'm um, – I've been thinking a lot about, again, this time in my life, and I um, – and I, I've written a great deal about this time in my life. I was a, um, I bartended at a brunch restaurant called the Bongo Room. And, uh, the, one of the owners, the, the chef who, who first hired me many years ago just recently passed away. And all of the, um, the staff from that time, you know, when we were all in our twenties, you know, we're all in our forties now, but I mean, we all had dinner last weekend. Like the women flew in from California and New York and, and just like get together and remember John and how much he meant to us. And, and if I have any Chicagoans listening to this right now, go like, go eat some pancakes at Bong Room this weekend. Just like do that for John. Like that man loved caring for us all with food so much. And I, but I would, I would sit there at like, with my friends and, and we would make bloody Marys for everybody all the time. And I, and what it really is bartending besides listening to stories. Mm-hmm. And I was in grad school at the time. And I remember making all of these connections in my brain between like what, what we were reading in grad school, right? Like Kafka and Joan Dinian and Tony Morrison and Richard Wright and all these incredible. Uh, I just tried to say Kafka twice. I, I love me some Kafka. I hated him at the beginning, but Oh my God, that's my dude. His writing, his writing is my dude. He's a weird, he's a weird Dude. Okay. But anyway, this is not my Kafka lecture. Um, but just like the different tech, the, the, the different storytelling techniques that these authors were using are directly connected to like my customers trying to say things out loud to keep or get my attention, right? Like how do we use direct address? How do we use scene building? Like how do we use narrative movement? Like, like all, how are we structuring a story? Like how are we tying together the meaning of the story versus the what happens? (laughs) These were all things that I was, looking at in text and now I'm hearing it out loud. So I got really interested in the, in the connections be, between the two. So I started working with second story, which is a, a personal narrative storytelling collective in Chicago. We're in our 25th anniversary right now, which is amazing. Uh, it grew from just like a group of writers and actors in a, you know, drinking too much in a wine bar to this just incredible company like they're of a huge board of directors and a full-time like fully paid staff now and just this enormous company and we do a bunch of shows like it it's such a great place and that has been my artistic home for for 25 years and and really where I got to learn I think both as an artist and as an educator um how we can best get at the stories that matter like what and, and so what does it mean when you as a like something feels urgent for you that's writing making it urgent for somebody else that's rewriting right and and just these 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 things that like hadn't fused together in my brain 
really fused together when I was making work for the microphone at, at Second Story. Uh, and then what happened next was I, I was doing what I, I did one of my Second Story stories that I wrote for Second Story. It's about it's about healing from postpartum depression by uh, stalking my neighbor with a wireless baby video monitor. And I did that story. And uh, there was an editor in the room. Her name is Roxanne Gay. Maybe some of you are familiar. And she asked if she could publish it at the Rumpus. And a few months later, I got an email from Cheryl Strayed saying she picked up her Best American Essays. It happened just like that. It was that quick. That cha- And that changed the entire church. I got an agent, started writing for the New York Times. I got my gig at Northwestern. Like, everything changed after that. Um, and what that was was me writing something that mattered, that felt urgent for me, one. Two, trying to make it urgent for other people. And in that particular case, that was a very specific audience of drunk Chicagoans. <laughs> right? So the question becomes, how do we write about depression in a way that's not depressing? And I think about this all the time because there are many of us listening to this that are trying to write really difficult things, really painful things. And sometimes that stuff is really hard to read. Um, it, it, I, I am, I rewrite to be read, right? I write hundreds of thousands of words that, or have written that, that I don't want ever want anybody to read. Like that's me trying to figure out my own brain. Mm-hmm. But when I'm rewriting it, I'm writing it to be read and, and to think of people, to think of people for me drinking, but like, I mean, I, I, I don't want to bring like, I, I, I work with a lot of actors, um, Writers who are also writing in and through sobriety as well, too. So I really want to like I don't want to be talking flippantly about alcohol in this way. But but your immediate audience is right there in front of you. How are you going to get them? How are you going to hold them? How am I really trying to communicate with these other people about this experience? And live performance does that for me. This isn't an unseen audience in a, the library in Alaska. Like this is somebody right. These are human beings right in front of my face. Mm-hmm. And that has been the, the tenant for for everything that I do and to see the success of that piece, which was written for that audience to see the success of it in literary spaces was really illuminating for me. And, and at the same time that that was happening to me, it was also happening to my dear friend, the, the writer, Samantha Irby, right? Where like she and I met on microphones in Chicago at the, the paper machete at the green mill. And she got pulled like her work got pulled off of a microphone and uh, indie Press made it into a book. Janine Garofalo passed that book. Janine Garofalo was at the Paper Machete, passed that book on to the, the women who produced Broad City. And then Sam's career kind of moved forward from there. Uh, so uh, would would I be in the place that I am now if if I hadn't done it on a microphone? I Maybe I don't know, but but for me at this point they they are locked. They are they are together, and it, it's part of my writing and editing process too. I read everything aloud. Um, I I, I want to hear it. Yeah. Reading and listening are the same. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ooh. Okay. So let's bring your son into this now. Has he okay. uh, been to Second Story or anywhere mm-hmm. where you've um, spoken stories? And how does yes. He- Yes. He started coming to Second Story at the beginning of the pandemic in my mom's basement that we were just talking about, because that's when Second Story went online. And Second Story was primarily in bars. Um, So, I mean, of course, like he was around the organization all the time, like he was a baby and he'd be in my backpack. And as a um, 
something that's very, I, I think, important to me when he was born. I, I write about this a lot. Like postpartum was a big thing in, in my experience. And uh, Amanda Delheimer, who was one of the women who started Second Story, she, she is its current artistic director to this day. She started a spreadsheet of company members uh, to hold my baby so that I could write. And that company showed up for me in ways that I will go to my grave trying to pay forward. Uh, we cannot, we cannot do this alone. We cannot do this alone. So when I say that, that that place has been my creative home, I, I don't just mean I made some cool art with these people, which is true, but also they cared for the people making the cool art. Yeah. Uh, I got back from, um, Alaska a few weeks ago. My father passed away. And I was in Alaska for a month. Uh, if there are people watching this right now who have been in my inbox in the past month, I love you so much. I'm so sorry. I can't like I don't even know how to I'm, tr- I'm trying. I'm trying to get through everything right now. Um, and I. I don't even remember what I was just going <laughs> to. We were I was, talking about not doing it alone and people. Who oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I came back, I, I went from Alaska to Nashville. I did a show in Nashville and then I went to AWP in Kansas city. And so I just got home last week. All my plants are dead, but there were just so much kindness, like, like my mailbox, like just, there's so much stuff, but there's like second story just sent like this, um, this big candle, like the, the company and just, and the card was just like, we know you need a little light. Oh my God. And like, how do you. How do we how do we care for one another in all of this? I I mean, we have got to care for one another. I there was this there was this piece in the I don't even know where it was. Was it New York Times? Like a, and this was even years ago, but it's the most relevant thing that I've ever read in my life. Like the the title of it was I don't know how to explain to you that we have to be kind to each other, mm-hmm. right? And that sentence, like I don't even remember the specific political question that that piece was getting at, but it is applicable to everything. It is applicable to reproductive justice. It is applicable to genocides right now in Gaza and the Sudan and Congo. It's applicable to housing insecurity and mass incarceration. It's applicable to what's happening in Alabama with IVF. It's applicable to what, to our loss of next Benedict um, the, and what's happening to our tr- queer and trans kids. Like it, how we, we like I, I don't know how. Like that's what it boils down to is we have to be, we have to be good to yeah. one another. And I, oh my God, I really, I really lost. I really just got off the train, Laura. I don't know where, where no. we were. No, oh, second story. Yeah, you directed yeah. the train, and I. Yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is how we take care of each other. Yeah. Um, and so my work is mine. I made it, but. It has been touched by so many theater directors and music designers and uh, editors and audience members. Like, I, I mean, it, I spent five years writing for the New York Times. There is still no um, uh, more challenging audience than drunk Chicagoans at the paper machete at uh, on a three o'clock on Sundays. At the Green Mill, like the, like the, it, I, I have, I have written for a live Chicago audience. I can write for anybody. They're the most demanding. If you are not brave, you will know. <laughs> and I'm grateful for it. I'm better because of, because of them. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, 
I feel like that was so powerful that now I've lost my, I'm like, where do we go now? Because we can I don't go know. anywhere. I don't know. And, and then, okay, so let me reset, which is amazing. And let's go back to motherhood. And Great. Yeah. And let's touch briefly on, because I, I know this is such a huge subject and we don't have a ton yeah. of time left, but yeah. on that uh, postpartum experience and yeah. of needing to show up for each other and to care mm-hmm. about each other, um, what was that like for you and how, who showed up for you at that time? Uh, every, everybody. I and people and and we can't talk about it in past tense because it's still people are still showing up for me. And that is because of the writing, right? Writing freezes time. So there are readers who encounter that essay. And of all my work, that's the one that's traveled the most, right? It was in the Best American Essays. I recorded it for NPR, Radio National Australia, Radio National London. Like it was over like it 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 moves, right? But people encounter it, and it is, for them, the first time. And to this day, and I mean, I wrote I wrote it, I experienced it when he was, you know, between zero and one, and I wrote it when he was four, mm-hmm. and now he is 16, and I still get emails. I still get emails from people who are experiencing postpartum, but both, and I, 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 I just need to keep hitting this one, both birthing parents and non-birthing parents parents, um, whether it's somebody who loves the birthing parent and is trying to understand what's going on with their bodies or there are things that are happening in their bodies or adoptive parents or like it, like there is always just like a what is even happening? What is even happening? There's this un like describable love and undescribable fear and fun, just all of this stuff. And then the hormones and like, it's just all coming out your nose. Like literally, like I felt like everything inside of me was coming out my nose and it was like tangible. I, I could grab it. Um, but it, it is still real because the writing makes it real. It locked that time period. I, I think about this a lot at, at uh, where I work at Northwestern University Press. Our executive director is Pernisha Jones, and she's just a brilliant poet in her own right. She has this poem called Bikini Care Instructions, and it is about, um, this was a, a news story five, six years ago. I, I, I don't remember the exact time frame, but a bunch of white cops in Texas went to a public pool where there were a lot of like young black girls there and they were swimming and the cops grabbed one of those girls and sat on her. And like, just imagine like you're a girl and here's an adult man with a gun sitting on you and you're in a bathing suit. Right. And, and it was in the, the news cycle for like three or four days as happens in our news cycle. And then it was gone out of the news cycle. And pretty she was like, no, we got to freeze that. We got to freeze it. We got to look at it. We got to look at what happened. We have to think about the hu- the humanity of that. We got to think about that girl. And I've I've listened to Parnisha talk about this poem all so many times, and every time it is like just the truth of it. I mean, it just brings me to my knees. Like a piece of art freezes something because the news cycle moves so fast that it's gone, and there are things that have happened that we don't talk about anymore because other things happen, but they are still happening, and so. That is what a piece of art can do. I just find so utterly profound. And and with that particular essay, what what happens in it is I, I 
the the baby video monitor that we had. I, and I mean, I don't know what y'all have these days. I mean, at that particular time, this was very high tech, but I'm sure you, I mean, by now you all have baby monitors like what infused into your eyeballs. But at that point, baby monitor and it, it had two channels, an A channel and a B channel in case you had two kids in separate rooms. So you could look at two things. But I lived in that 800 square foot condo across from the Aragon in a room, you know, in a blocks full of other condos. And somebody must have had that same monitor because when I flipped channels, I saw somebody else's baby. And I would stare at that. I would flip the channel, but I wasn't trying to see the baby. I was trying to see the mom. I was trying to watch the mom because I, I felt so utterly alone. I needed to see another mother. And just like the inception of this is that now other mothers are watch they are watching me through that essay. Um, and the the intensity of that. And so the people who now and you know and and I can go I I can take this in the direction of like the bigger questions of mental health care. Like you asked me earlier, like um who, sh- who showed up for me and how I still need people to show up for me because depression is a real like depression. Like you, you, you don't, it's not like Shazam, I'm healed. <laughs> it is a, it is a, a, like mental health is a thing that lives in our bodies. And, and so we have an awareness of what is, of, of how to take care of ourselves or not take care of ourselves. And, um, and I, and so there are still people who show up for me now, uh, me showing up to the work, me showing up to writing is is showing up for is trying to show up for myself. Me showing up to the writing and me showing up to yoga class, like those are those are the the things that that I needed in particular. Um, but at the time that I was in the actual experience, uh, it was it was second story. It was that company that showed up for me. Uh, it was my best friend Dia. She lives in Oakland. She got on a plane. And she had right before she came here, she ruptured her Achilles tendon um, on her lesbian football league. And I and our apartment in the Aragon was on the third floor. And so she could like she you know, those little pushy scooters where you put your let. She was on one of those. And so she went up three flights of stairs every day on her butt to sit up there and hold my baby. And she just held my baby. And she was like, what what about what about a shower? Caleb and I are cool. What would you think about a shower? Right now, you know, like the you need you need somebody. I think it's an Adrian Rich line. We need there there needs to be those among us with whom we can weep and still be counted as a warrior. And that that for me is Dia. And then also at that time, I met my friend Sarah because Amanda, who's, who I was doing Second Story with, even though Second Story was showing up for me, what Amanda realized was that um, there weren't any mothers. There were a whole lot of artists who loved me, but there. There weren't a lot of mothers. And so she called her mom friend, Sarah, and Sarah showed up at my house with a bottle of wine and was like, let's switch. Give me the baby. Give me the baby. You go open this. Um, uh, oh, my God, we need each other. Yeah. Yeah. That is just the most beautiful place to end, Megan. I think so. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. So Thanks for making this space for us. We really need it. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for being here. Of course. All right. Bye, everyone. And thank you all for being here this evening as well and for listening to this conversation. I hope it resonated with you as much as it did me. 
Um, and if you enjoy Writer Mother Monster, if this episode and others touched you, please consider becoming a patron or patroness to help keep these conversations going and keep the space open for other writer mothers who are looking for support and advice and for community. And until next time, thank you all so much. It's been a pleasure. And I will see you on the other side. Good night.